Happening now, we want to welcome our listeners and viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that's located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in beautiful Missoula, Montana. And I am joined, as always, by Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening. Wes, how are you this evening? Good evening. I am fantastic and very excited to be back in saddle with you. It's been a few weeks, and I know you've gallivanted about the globe, so perhaps we'll get to uh, hear some travel tips and hopefully not any horror stories of <laughs> customs, uh, you know, customs <laughs> ex excitement. I'm sure that you probably don't fit a drug courier or terrorist profile, so I'm hopeful, hopefully you were able to survive well your excursions. Yes, yes. And in fact, it's funny because I thought of you when I was going through customs. It was in Chicago. Um, my, uh, I was in Sweden for a week, uh, uh, a couple weeks ago and my pathway home was Stockholm, Helsinki, Helsinki, Chicago, Chicago, Seattle. And then after a couple of days, Seattle to Missoula. And so we checked in the United States in Chicago. And part of it was that we had to rush, 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 rush because we had a tight turnaround, but. Um, we had our little form and we declared our hundred dollars in chocolate and gummy bears and the, the guy barely looked at us. He grumbled at us, took our form and moved right along. But I, you know, had thought about maybe just having the button right there to, to wipe my phone in case they wanted to check out my, you know, illicit phone data. So. That's right. Check in to see what, do you sure you don't have a Dropbox account? What's your, <laughs> give me your Twitter ID. So. Right, right, right. And actually I have an article about that a little bit later tonight related to, um, uh, the Supreme Court ruled today. In fact, we just jump into a quick one right now. The Supreme Court ruled today that you have a right to social media. And the context of it was that someone that was uh, sentenced uh, to a sex offense, um, and I want to say it was like in North Carolina or Georgia, um, and oh, that, North Carolina, yeah. and it was, uh, I believe the situation was that it, it, the defendant who was 21 years old at the time was um, uh, convicted of a sex offense, which was a statutory rape. And uh, eventually served his time, was released, but then was ordered limited from social media, which apparently is a common uh, restriction for um, uh, post-prison parolees and um, others in, in the, the kind of post-punishment phase regarding to, to being on sex offense registries, et cetera. And so um, the individual sued, saying that he had a First Amendment right to utilize things like networking tools, social networking tools. It's interesting because about half the headlines focused on the um, the sex offender post uh, punishment sex offender part of this. The other half of the headlines focused on that essentially guarantees you a right to social media. That social media is part of your your First Amendment expression. Um, and I've, I've actually queued up the opinion to read because I'm curious if they talk about the ubiquity of social media. But um, the particular article that I cited tonight talks about how it's one of the first Supreme Court decisions that really keeps uh, kind of a modern day interpretation of something constitutional as it relates to the internet. And so I think you're going to start seeing more and more Supreme Court decisions that um, deal with these types of issues that people will start pulling things like rights to access X, Y, and Z in regards to your connection um, via the internet, so social media. Absolutely. That's that's fascinating. Um, it reminds me, I was, and I may put this in the show notes, listening to a BBC World Service documentaries podcast called Weapons of Mass Surveillance this evening. <clears throat> and it's talking about Middle East repression when it comes to surveillance and, you know, using these kinds of tools. And I was, you know, thinking about self-determination, thinking about rights, thinking about the ways the Internet plays into that. And, you know, it's not only do we have a right to be able to express ourselves freely, uh, you know, face to face as well as electronically. But, you know, do we have a right not to be surveilled and have each and everything that we do, you know, recorded by our government? I think we'll probably touch on some other articles about that because sure. we've had a number of terrorist events and other, you know, proclamations by world leaders that relate to things like encryption and, and uh, secrecy and things like that online. Nice. So we want to tell everybody, if, if you don't know, that we are the EdTech Situation Room and we have all of the links and more that we won't even have time to talk about on our website, which you can find at edtechsr.com slash links. I want to give a special shout out to Tammy Parks, who is our biggest fan in Howe, Oklahoma. 
how Oklahoma, as I know everyone is aware, is right next to Poto, which has the tallest hill in North America. It is 999 feet, and technically I think a mountain is 1,000 feet. So <clears throat> there you go. That is your interesting Oklahoma fact to share with your friends and tell your neighbors. Um, we will attempt to put a educational spin on the latest technology news, and there has been a heck of a lot of things that have happened. And Jason, I was betting that you were chomping at the bit with all of the Apple announcements. I mean, it was over two hours. So I don't know even if we have anything like that in the show, but is, is there anything that has stood out for you? Um, I will actually use a visual aid, if I can get it out here, <clears throat> to say that I've uh, joined the ranks of Oh, nice. An iPad Pro. The Pros, yeah. This is the, nice. the 10.5, but uh, I don't is know that, where they is got that last, Is that last year's 10.5? No, this is, this, this is the new one. Yeah. Okay, is, so is that technically 9.7? No, this is, or no, it's this, this is like, 10 point, right. It's the same, oh, it's right. the same dimension as the other iPad. It's the just 9.7, I yeah. think the width is like an, a half inch more or something right. like that in the same. And what do you but, think so far? Uh this is amazing. This is this is a Harry Potter one right here, the, the Apple Pencil. And so I don't know where they get 20%. You know, in the keynote, they, they threw around, the, the, the Apple Pencil is 20% better than it was before. I mean, who, who pulled that out? Uh, but, you know, Ben Wilkoff had been working on me. And uh, actually, there's uh, uh, at, our, at our church, it's like a counselor. He's called a spiritual director. But he's, uh, he's, he's an orthopedic surgeon who's retired. Uh, but he's also an artist. And he was just at this this workshop in eastern Oklahoma, and he was raving about, you know, how his uh, his art instructor was using his iPad, taking pictures of their work, and then using his pencil and changing the colors and, and doing all this stuff. And so, <clears throat> anyway, it pushed me over the edge. I was on an iPad Air 2. Uh, which was wonderful. Um, and I do, you know, I like, I like the stylus, but I, I can definitely see why Apple has taken things into their own hands as far as their peripherals to make, you know, an amazing, right. amazing stylus. And I, maybe I knew this before, but the, the tip comes off. And so when you pair it, there's no need to go to Bluetooth or whatever. You just put this, you know, right into the iPad. <clears throat> you can charge it that way, but then there, it comes with a little female to female adapter. So you can plug this in, you know, overnight into a regular lightning <clears throat> adapter and then, you know, go to town. So nice. I will be attempting to do some childish sketchnoting of the ISTE conference here in a couple of weeks as we're down in San Antonio. Sure. And I, I think that more than anything, um, you know, the fact that, you know, how, how is the iPad transformative? Um, not everybody's going to be shooting video and doing green screen and, and, you know, producing media in that way. I think there's probably a lot more people interested in annotating, you know, documents, right. interested in highlighting things. And this has me thinking about, you know, our English faculty. Um, we do have two of our math faculty, uh, whose, uh, principal or director has <clears throat> ordered a couple iPad pros and those will be the first ones in the hands of our faculty. Uh, and so just based off of my cursory experiences, I'm, I'm just thinking it's pretty, pretty amazing. However, to be fair, I've had friends with the Microsoft side of things and the surface tablets and the surface books raving as well saying that, you know, the stylus is like butter. It's amazing to draw on. And, and so that function of tablets, I think is going to be, it's, it's sort of like we see with the Apple Watch. Apple seems to be all in for the health side, and they're really not trying to make the watch everything for everybody, but they're recognizing as a, as a health device, it really has a lot of utility. Right. Still hasn't convinced me yet, no smartwatch for me. But anyway, that's one, one, one thing I think I understand better and am, am excited is I can't, you know, I can't tell you what, what kind of wood mine is made of, but I mean, seriously, it is just like, it's amazing. It is, it's definitely the best stylus, and I've tried a slew of, of stylus sure. before. So. What stood out for you from the keynote? Well, I I think the iMac Pro is probably the 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 piece that I found most interesting because I do you know I I I've thought a lot about this and I've probably uh, openly uh, uh, talked about this a little too much on the podcast, but I'm kind of a, a a lost soul in the Apple world and 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 part of it is that you know I've I've purchased a high end Chromebook and that's been very useful for me and I've I've utilized I think Windows 10 has been a great movement forward for Microsoft and it's taken older hardware and really made it into to uh, a, a much more uh, usable piece than I think Windows 7 or Windows 8.1 was doing. But the other piece of it that really hurt, like hurt my, my connection to the community was when they released the new Mac Pro several years ago, the garbage can Mac Pro. And then 
Um, I was going to wait for a generation two and they never really released one. Like they, they updated a couple of times, although not nearly as much as they should have in light of the hardware that's available, uh, in, in the year subsequent to the release. And so I never upgraded my Mac Pro, uh, at home, which is now a nine year old Mac Pro. It still runs just fine. I mean, it's not a power machine anymore by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still better than, you know, a two or three year old PC, for example, the Mac Pro would be better. Um, I think it's, uh, and, and, and other, I know and have heard of other professionals have been somewhat in the same boat here, but the fact that, that Apple seems to have moved away from professionals, um, has really, I think, impacted the marketplace in that regard. And for them to move in the direction of a, you know, kind of high-end spec Mac, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, iMac Pro is a really, really great, uh, evolution for them. However, of course, the downfall is, is in my mind that it's going to be wickedly expensive. Like it wouldn't be the only scenario I would have is if work decided to buy me one, um, which the, even the lowest end one would be way beyond what I would be able to expect, um, you know, my day job to, 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 to do, even though we believe by buying the right hardware for the job, uh, a middle end, um, iMac as it currently stands would, would be sufficient enough. So, but I'm glad to see him go in that direction. And I'll admit the, the kind of jet black iMac is beautiful. Like it's a really nice looking piece of hardware. So I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, seeing if they can, you know, continue to evolve a bit in that particular perspective. Uh, I guess we can uh, pick up another item of Apple news. This is Apple Insider on June 13th, 2017. Survey finds one third of people interested in Apple's HomePod still more likely to buy Amazon Echo. I guess, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was certainly surprised at the price point of the yeah. uh, HomePod. <clears throat> or no, was that my saying that right? Uh, yeah. And I think that it, this reflects Apple's, um, you know, trailing the big the other big dogs as far as the uh ai the uh, artificial intelligence they're they're really emphasizing this as a competitor to sonos and a little bit less as hey here's your ai key to you know rule your house and you know one one uh one speaker device to rule them all i mean it just it's it's really really pricey I'll say this too, though. Generally, you don't want to get a first generation Apple device to your point yeah. about the trash can Mac. That was, that was smart, you know, better to wait for the second generation. Cause if there had been one, undoubtedly it, it would have worked out whatever issues. And anyway, it probably would have been better. That's been true with certainly Apple TV, the MacBook Air, you know, the iPhone, there's, there's the iPad. There's a host of products that we can go down the list with. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with next. Uh, I'm still not jumping into the home the home speaker side of things. Um, I did speak with someone today at our school whose, whose spouse is continuing to do her, the shopping list with Alexa. And so whenever they think of something they need, I guess they're able to say, you know, Hey, Alexa, put this on the shopping list. And, you know, and if it's something they can order from Amazon, they can end up ordering that. But um, yeah, I, I don't know that, that was interesting, but these are still, still a bit on the part on the parlor trick side of things. And, and definitely not something yet that I, I see, um, you know, affecting us in education. The only thing I'd say in terms of education is I, I was listening to um, a podcast. Uh, let's see. I think it was, was it Horizons in Education. It's Dan Kretka's, uh podcast, and they had uh, Rafranz Davis on. And uh, Rafranz made a comment in there about, you know, self-driving cars. I'll never, you know, be in a self-driving car. And I think – one of the mindsets that we need to be getting getting ourselves into is that we're all we're augmented. You know, we're augmented right. now with our phones. We're augmented with our computers. Um, these other kinds of AI devices are not going to be taking over like Skynet tomorrow. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of debate over whether that is going to happen at all. But what we do know is that they're able to make you know, all kinds of folks more powerful, whether that's the surgeon who's able to, you know, more precisely, you know, use lasers and cut and do things and, and maybe do more surgeries simultaneously than they could do before, or whether it's the teacher in the classroom who has, you know, differentiated, um, software that's able to identify gaps for students and, you know, give them, uh, the kinds of lessons and, and remediation or whatever that, that they need on, on their level. So I just think that we need to be open to these things because we've always been tool users and <clears throat> things are changing so fast. You will hear people, you know, rant and, and be, you know, fairly upset about things. And 
you know, there, there's going to be all kinds of feelings that people are going to have as, the, as automation continues to move forward. But I think getting used to the idea of being augmented people uh, and then being discerning about how we want to, when we want to be augmented and how we want to be augmented is, right. is yep. interesting. All right. Well, where would you like to go, go next for an article? Well, let's uh, um, actually, let's talk about that HomePod thing for just one second. Um, I, so I was hoping to do a demo tonight. And as it turns out, I thought that the item had been delivered to my house and instead it was delivered to work. So I don't have it tonight, but I went ahead and bought the Alexa wand, which is the, uh, I don't, I don't know about that. The Alexa wand. I think that's the name of it. This isn't the screen. No, no. This is a device that, um, it's an Amazon device and it, it's a wand with a barcode reader at the end of it that sticks to your refrigerator and basically you scan barcodes and it adds it to your cart on Amazon. But you're not going to do that in Whole Foods, I think. At least I, well, no, like not quite yet. In fact, we could, we could talk about that in regards to that piece in a moment, but, um, the idea here was that, uh, and they were basically offering it for free last week. So you could, um, you could buy it and then you get, the, it was like 20 bucks and then you get the same amount of credit in Amazon. So they're basically giving it away. And I buy enough of stuff at Amazon that I'll, I'll go through that credit in the next 48 hours. So, um, it's, it's, it's not a huge deal, but, um, it's interesting to me the, the way Amazon is wiggling its way into your home. In, in ways that, um, you know, is, is kind of, uh, is, is, is becoming more and more and more directly commerce based, right? So, um, obviously the Alexa and the Amazon Echo and the, the, the piece there, it, I, I, it's, it's not a, a shock to say that Amazon is the overwhelming leader right now in, in, in home based voice assistance. It's been going very well for them. But now that they're, you know, they, they have the dash buttons, which you can, you know, press a dash button that's associated with a specific product. And then, you know, two days later, you know, laundry detergent or Slim Jims or gummy bears or bleach shows up to your home, right? But now that they've even got to where you, it's got an internet connected device that looks like a wand that you can just, you know, hold up to your, um, to your sandwich bags and scan and call it good. And it's, it's really interesting to me that there, that it's not a shock that commerce is leading this movement, but there are just more and more devices now that are internet connected, that are, you know, attempting to kind of, you know, figgle, figgle is the word I just made up, but figgle its way into your home so that, um, you know, everything is being super net connected. And I, you know, there's obviously privacy concerns, surveillance concerns. There's other articles tonight we'll talk about in regards to that. But next week, um, actually next week, we're going to be at ISTE. The week after, I'll try to have it up and running so that I can show off what that process looks like. But I'm, I'm pretty, pretty entertained by the concept. So. Well, mentioning Amazon, we might as well cover this article. And this was uh, covered by every single news outlet this last week. But this is an Ars Technica article from June 16th. Amazon buys Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. So this is the largest acquisition of a grocery chain ever. And what this basically provides Amazon is, I think, 442 or 440 something, um, you know, outlets where suddenly they can be directly selling groceries. They can be delivering things in a few hours, you know, whether that's by, by human, by drone. Um, and we've really, I don't know that they go into this here, but another article I was reading said it's really the, the race for Walmart and Amazon to, um, you know, dominate our, our uh, shopping, uh, you know, trying to get us to buy everything. Um, are you able to order groceries online and then just pick them up in Missoula somewhere, Jason, or is that not come to Missoula yet? That's not come to Missoula yet. I do have some experience, however, in Seattle two years ago when I was living there for eight weeks um, to facilitate my kidney transplant two, two, uh, two years ago this week. Um, we were starting to use the Amazon Home uh, Grocery Delivery Service, which was free for the first six months or so, and, and Seattle was a focus city. And I got to say, I loved it. Like, it was so great to be able to 
Um, you know, you lose a little bit on the comparison shopping because they were focusing usually on one or two brands as opposed to the diversity you might find in a large supermarket, modern supermarket. But I really like being able to, you know, casually add to a list and then say, please deliver at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. And, you know, uh, uh, five gigantic Amazon fresh bags were sitting outside my my uh, apartment door. And, you know, it was just there and, and good to go. And um, I... You know, and I not that I hate shopping. I'm I'm the one that does most of the grocery shopping um, in our family, and I don't hate it, hate it. But the the ability to kind of you know curate a, a shopping list over a couple of days and just press go was pretty unbelievable. Well, and then you just gain back that hour of your life or whatever exactly. it was to drive to the store and go back, right? Yeah, so that's uh, uh, that's that's pretty amazing. I've not tried it. We have several Walmart stores now here in Oklahoma City that <clears throat> will do that, and I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, we when we moved here about seven years ago, I guess. Uh, boy, the grocery store options were not great. But since then, we've had a Whole Foods come to town. We have a Trader Joe's. Um, we have a chain called Sprouts. There's another one called Uptown Grocery. I mean, there there's a lot. And um, honestly, I usually shop at at Walmart Neighborhood Market. But it's it's amazing how much better the produce selection is in other grocery stores. And, you know, we also can talk about food deserts and, and other, other things. Cause there's a whole, whole lot of layers to all this. And, yeah. um, but I, what, what's your impression overall about, you know, Amazon making this move and what, what do you see this boating for our society writ large in terms of, of employment automation and, and I guess network effects, the idea that just the bigger dogs get bigger and bigger. Right. There's an interesting article, and I wish I'd put it in here now. I think it was in Wired, but I, I would, I, I don't know for sure. But basically, the argument they were making um, was that Amazon used the incredible profits that they are gaining from their Amazon Web Services division, which is, you know, runs a good percentage of the internet now, to be able to have the capital available to drop thirteen point whatever billion dollars to buy. Um, you know, a, a, a major chain like Whole Foods. And the argument that they were making was that what's interesting about that is that in 2017, chances are if you are a business that is in any way internet connected, has a web page, has an e-commerce site, uh, utilizes an app, chances are you're probably paying money in some way, shape, or form to Amazon um, to a company that's that's trying to put you out of business by uh, you know being competitors to you know, formerly you know, prosperous local businesses. Now, I, I don't like the argument that Amazon slash Walmart is driving a, a business out of business, not because there isn't some truth to it, but because it's 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 way overstating a very complex piece. Uh, I live in a town in Montana that's about a hundred thousand, if you include the larger the, the larger metro area around Missoula, Montana. And the bottom line is is that if I want to buy clothing at six o'clock at night, the downtown retailers don't stay open past five or six o'clock at night for me to go and, 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 and give them my patronage, which means my only option there are chains. That's, that's really the only thing I have left. And the same is true of Amazon. I can buy a necktie at three o'clock in the morning if, if my heart's content. Um, but it's really interesting that Amazon seems to be wiggling their fingers now into the face-to-face -face commerce element. Obviously, um, they bought Whole Foods. They have opened up books, a couple of bookstores now as proof of concept. Um, and they are obviously heading into a certain direction um, to try to become the Uber retailer, whether you want a face-to-face -face experience or you want an online experience. And so that makes them a player, you know, like it or not. And a connection to a theme we've had quite a few times here on the show is talking about automation and uh, artificial intelligence. And it's really it's really automation. It's the continued right. evolution uh, of the industrial revolution where we have mechanization that is replacing human labor. And while there's been a promise of that, you know, giving us free time and perhaps if you can order your groceries from Amazon or Walmart and have them delivered, you know, there's an example of of some time that you can recover. Um, but we've also got you know, jobs that are being replaced. And we've listed some statistics and forecasts that people have had about the number of jobs today that are automatable. And so the link that I've got in the show notes this week relating to this is uh, a video that says, how many jobs will robots actually take? It's just two and a half minutes. It's, it's from a, a group called Axios from June 5th, 2017. 
first thing to say about this is most of the video that I think I consume today is coming from the YouTube algorithm, right? The more videos I like, the more videos I watch, the more, the more I sort of teach the machine by saying, I like that. I add it to the playlist. I subscribe. The more it shows me those kinds of videos. And so that is, that's how I discovered that. So there's an example of augmentation, right? My ability to discover uh, interesting media and things that are, you know, topics that I'm, I want to follow and want to know more about is being directly benefited by the YouTube algorithm, which we heard at the, at the Google event a couple weeks ago, you know, AI is feeding into, into that algorithm. Right. The other connection to make though is, you know, what are we doing right now in school and local government to prepare for this automation revolution? We said a number of weeks ago when we cited some articles that said, you know, truck driving is the number one most common job in the state of Oklahoma. There's 23 states. In fact, you can go back to, I think, the last episode that Cheryl Oaks and Alice Barr were, were with me here. And Jason was uh, was uh, gallivanting about uh, the, the Northwest, I think. And, you know, Maine is another state, number one most common job, truck driving. You know, I think that these these predictions can, are reliable. That we are going to see the disruption of right. taxi services, of, of of the automobile industry. That you know, in in some places and maybe everywhere, we're going to be you know renting our cars more than we're going to be buying them. And I'm just thinking that, I mean, here in Oklahoma, where we, you know, just had a horrible legislative session, and and you know. It's just such a mess, and I don't want to get into a rabbit hole of this. But I'll say that our state teacher of the year, who's written several editorials, he and his wife have finally moved to Texas. They're together making $40,000 more per year than they were here in Oklahoma, you know, doing the same jobs that they have. But, you know, anyway, so we've got problems with our state finance. But here, here is going to come automation, and it's going to have huge pressures on the – the jobs and, and on the, on the education market. And I just, I just don't think we're not hearing, I'm not hearing and seeing anybody talking about this saying, wow, we really need to be gearing up for retraining and for opening up opportunities for folks who, you know, may be truck drivers or other have other kinds of employment that, you know, are going to be disrupted. Right. So I don't know, maybe, maybe we can't prepare for that, but it seems like we should be. Well, and it seems like that part of the problem with this conversation is that I get, and it, there's a lot of, 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 again, we could get down a huge political rabbit hole and, you know, we could drop, drop Trump into it and 16 election, yada, yada, yada. But the bottom line is, is that that, that conversation is going to be complex because it's, it's hard to retrain people that were coal miners to all take computer programming jobs because it doesn't work that way, right? Like not everyone wants to be a computer programmer. And, um, um, you know, and I, I've heard politicians say like it lines just like that, but not understanding, um, or maybe understanding and not caring that's so much more complex than that, right? But if we don't start now to be thinking about, um, you know, uh, what are we doing now to make sure 30 years from now, this is a less complex piece. And part of it is just realizing that, you know, the idea of training uh, a kid picking a career at 17 and going to college for that career and then doing that career for their career for their entire career is probably not going to, it's probably not going to exist. We're going to see increased disruption of industries. um, And and in my mind, things like resource extraction industries are going to start to diminish quite dramatically in the next two or three decades. Um, uh, Anything that can be automated will likely be automated. And so, you know, what are we doing about that in education? Like, what are we, what are we thinking about? And and again, you probably just want to make sure the kids are smart, right? Like in the end, it's not training them to be college and career ready as much as it is to be smart, right? And, and, and flexible and, you know, creative and all the things that we always hope out of kids. But, you know, it's, it's, and I, and I don't know how we deal with this. Like it's, it's, I keep thinking about this over and over again. I don't have any solutions to it, but it's, it's definitely going to become more of an issue. Well, as, as you are involved in the, the online virtual school of Montana, you've got a, probably a good perspective on this. What role do you think online education has to play in all of that? Well, I think it can help. Well, I've always thought the best the best argument for utilizing a model like this is access. Like I think we, especially states that have large rural populations like Montana, have access issues, right? And I think if we want students to have access to 
all the different subjects that may give them the diversity of information and skills to be successful in a, you know, a chaotically evolving world that I think is, is, is going to be inspired by the automation process, um, in Western countries, then I think organizations like ours are really critical to helping those access pieces. Uh, but what's interesting about that related to my day job is that something I've become very acutely aware of in the last seven years is that um, teaching is a really good example of this, right? Like we have pretty good experience that being a great face-to-face teacher is not necessarily a predictor of being a good online teacher. And in fact, being a good online teacher is not necessarily a predictor of being a good face-to-face teacher. And we've met teachers that, um, you know, uh, uh, were incredible rock star teachers in their face to face life, and the online thing just wasn't clicking with them. Not because they were a bad teacher. In fact, all the evidence was to the contrary. But there's a different skill set, slightly different skill set in most ways, but a different skill set that's required. And sometimes it, it means unlearning some of the tricks that you've developed as a good practitioner of education and pedagogy uh, to make that happen. And that's in the end where I think almost all industries are. Going have to be thinking about those pieces that how can we more universally prepare students for for careers whereas uh, you know it, it starts to then re-inspire that that careers that were never really associated with jobs that have taken kind a of ticket in the chin in the last two decades and I'm thinking of philosophy majors I'm thinking of literature majors those that um, are, are doing degrees that don't necessarily directly to a career they may be better trained for a lot of the careers that are going to be available in the future automated world than those that may be learning things that get dated really quickly um, but, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think this is such a huge deal. And uh, not that we're not talking about it because, you know, Wes and I talk about this every other week. But uh, the, the bottom line is I'm not sure if we're having this conversation at a high enough level in schools. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think I'd like to take us, we're about halfway through the show, um, to a, a topic that on our Google, Google Doc, many times we'll sort of organize things a little bit. We put just put them kind of all in on this at the same level, you know, in the show notes that you find on edtechsr.com. But the the heading I put under these is um, or over these is Web's dark side and censorship. And so there's and I actually just pasted in um, one more article that I had had found. Uh, first one is Guardian back on May 21st, 2017, revealed Facebook's internal rule book on sex, terrorism, and violence. And then more recently from Ars Technica on June 16th, Facebook six AI on terrorist p- posts, but humans still do the dirty work. And then um, a Google article, which I think is from day before yesterday, uh, from the Google blog, four steps we're taking today to fight online terror. And so we've got a couple, couple, couple different sides here, but on the, this links to the issue of work because people are being paid by Facebook literally four cents a click to try and keep the content cleaner and more appropriate for the rest of us. Um, I have listened to a note to self podcast episode that was about this. And then the Audrey Waters uh, podcast show, uh, Confab- Confabulous, I think maybe that was one, one that Ben Wilkoff had recommended a, a few weeks ago. They talked about this in terms of a social justice issue. It's kind of crazy because here we are, you know, utilizing Facebook for free and we're the product. But in many ways, we're the beneficiary of people who are hired as contract labor who are looking at horrific things, things like I don't even want to say out loud, things I don't want to even imagine, um, but just just terrible, terrible things that people are putting images of, they're, they're trying to do live video of, and, um, you know, this is really important because certainly in schools we've dealt with this with content filters and how much we lock down the network and you know to what degree do we teach kids to make good choices and then to what degree do we make sure we've blocked those websites so you know they're not able to make those choices i mean maybe youtube is blocked entirely or uh, facebook may you know social social media as an example may be blocked entirely um so it's we have both facebook and google putting more human beings on the job I am glad to see Facebook standing up more to their responsibility as a media company. We saw them shy away from that prior to and I think during the election. 
Um, but the, and then we're, we're seeing them, you know, try to use AI. But part of what this article is saying is that's not going to, to do the whole thing. We're going to still need, you know, human beings to be able to look through this. And so definitely a connection for education and digital citizenship is, you know, images are so powerful. Um, I have friends in the Air Force that have retired and some have been medically retired that were not like on the front line, so to speak, busting down doors in Iraq and, you know, pointing M16s and shooting, you know, at people. But they were the intelligence officers that were looking at all of these images that came out of these night raids and these attacks. And the PTSD, which they have and they will live with forever, probably, is every bit as real as the PTSD, which the soldiers who were actually not, you know, breaking down the doors and, and, you know, bringing in the guns to these places were. And so um, I don't know if we appreciate today how powerful images are. They affect people differently. I was speaking with uh, someone at school again, who was talking to me just about scary movies. And she was talking about how she really has to be careful because, you know, she'll have nightmares if she's seeing certain things and it just affects her differently. And so I think this is an important thing for us to talk about, not to shy away from. We're about to go to ISTE, the biggest, as Gary Steger says, you know, technology boat show of the year where everyone's going to be excited about the latest gadgets and the latest announcements. So I think it's very important that we talk about this uh, head on and that we, you know, also as a, I, I don't know, there, there's probably a societal uh responsibility that we have here to advocate just as we had the um what were the folks that they called the muckrakers right the the journalists who were talking about the uh industrial factories and and the need for better conditions whether it was in factories producing food or other kinds of things you know shining a light on those things i think we probably need a light shown on some of this and what's interesting is some of these well maybe all these companies have agreements that folks have to sign, non-disclosure agreements. So you're a contract employee, you have no health benefits, you're being subjected to all these images, you're probably going to have, you know, a, a condition like PTSD, and you're signing a non-disclosure agreement, which you're basically like you're working for the, the government and some kind of, you know, military or security agency saying, I'm not going to disclose what the rules are. So these articles are very enlightening, and I'm glad that we're having some of this come to light in terms of what the guidelines are, because these these are big issues. And while ho hopefully everyone listening to this is not, you know, facing the dark side of the web as, as it as it's discussed here, um, it's out there. And it, we live in a seek and find world. And certainly there are plenty of not just kids, but adults as well, that if they want to seek things, they will be able to find things. And this is a whole side of, of the internet that I think we need to, we, we shouldn't ignore and we shouldn't pretend, you know, doesn't exist in our excitement to talk about ed tech. Right. Well, and, and I, the, the Facebook one's particularly interesting because, um, one of, like, I, I think Facebook has an obligation, uh, as Twitter had an obligation to deal with their kind of bullying problem that, um, has been very pervasive in the content or in that particular platform. And so I think these social media companies do have a responsibility for that, but it's interesting where they're drawing lines too. And I would definitely recommend you, you get the link that, that deals with this. A uh, particular article because it shows a lot of the slides from the internal training related to that. And they have to draw, you know, lines that I don't think are necessarily that clear. And, you know, what, what is acceptable and what is not has, has been an interesting piece of that. Uh, it reminds me of the debate on Instagram about, uh, the, the nipple, right? Like, when is it inappropriate to show a nipple? When is it not? Male nipples are apparently okay. Female nipples are not. Um, that breastfeeding is not okay, um, even though that that apparently that particular rule has been applied in a fairly varied way. And you know, whenever you have a company drawing those particular lines, right, you're going to lead to some inconsistencies that that may or may not be defensible. And um, that's you know kind of the world we live in. And it's also you know when you don't have companies making those decisions, when it's it's more free than that, which is the power of 2017 in regards to our interconnected world. You know these are all discussions that 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 are suddenly interesting and and, and being uh, inspired. Um, 
Go ahead. One other thought to that is it's interesting to see how different uh, value systems and approaches to this on a national level are are being levied and, and coming to, to bear, you know, because Google or Facebook can't have a single policy for the world. They yeah. need, they have to look at, you know, in Germany, what are the rules about, you know, um, you know, pro-nationalist, pro pro um you know, Nazi groups and, and things. And, and yep. so it's, we're living in an incredibly fascinating day where there is an emerging global culture, but we certainly have a lot of censorship, particularly I'll, I will drop the link to that Middle East uh, weapons of mass surveillance or what, um, or weapons of whatever that, whatever that article was, I was just saying was the BBC world service, you know, dramatic differences in countries in terms of, of, uh, what things are authorized, what things are allowed, um, and then, you know, what are what are the norms? I, I'm I'm hopeful that we're going to. This is why digital citizenship education is so important, right? And and it's got to go beyond. Don't be stupid and post drinking pictures or drug right. use pictures, you know, on your website. And so, on a personal note, um, we've just done our um, update to our budget and our proposals for this digital citizenship team that that we're a part of. And I'm I'm really looking forward to the activities. I can I can do more updates about that later, but. But basically, we're we're going to do a fall retreat and an, an ed camp in the uh, spring, focused on digital citizenship, and then you know different events to to uh, reach out to students and parents. And I just think it's so critical that we equip our teachers to talk about these issues with students and to grapple with them, because I think if it would be easy in some cases to stick to the curriculum, and I and I'll pretty much guarantee you the curriculum is not going to talk about a lot of these issues, but they're really important ones in terms of, you know, things to share, things to not, you know, how do how do how do we choose um, to walk these different lines between uh, content and and platforms and and things that are shared and you know what we choose to do about it when we become aware of it, et cetera. And then uh, maybe a, an interesting side note related to that, because you mentioned the notion of teaching uh, uh, more direct uh, instruction on, on digital citizenship. There's a really fascinating um, um, article that uh, actually I thought was a New York Times article, but now that I'm looking at it, it is a, it's a Reuters article that appeared in today's New York Times uh, to talk about how apparently several years ago the uh, uh, government of Mexico started um, – uh, investing very heavily in cyber spying tools, they said at the time, to focus on criminals. Like they wanted the ability to regulate and, and investigate crime in, in, in a 21st century way, right? Like that, that a lot of the crime now benefits very dramatically by our, our interconnected world. Well, uh, a number of people have filed complaints with the federal government in Mexico that the government has been using these tools to spy on uh, prominent critics of the government, journalists, and others that uh, you know would otherwise be protected in any sort of regime that protects free speech, and that goes back to me to this notion that you know, like it's you don't want to be paranoid, right? But at the same time, like all these devices with all their their tentacles in in in, in sensitive and non-sensitive parts of your life, like that's a a very serious deal that we need to be um, you know somewhat uh, uh, both understanding of and then you know make conscious decisions before we put any data in in those systems. And I probably more blindly trust a lot of these corporations than I should, but at you know those are always choices I make as a fairly informed and savvy consumer. And that those are also discussions that need to be happening in schools as well. Absolutely. Well, I went ahead and just moved that article uh, under the, the headline surveillance. So um, that one was, was June 19th. Uh, a couple other articles on the, on the surveillance note. Oh, and, and I'll say this before we share any new articles. I've been invited and I haven't signed the contract yet, but I'm hopeful this is going to work out. <clears throat> to do the opening keynote in Ohio at their state ed tech conference in February. Nice. And so shout out to those in Ohio listening to the show because our discussions about surveillance, privacy, digital citizenship, as well as I, I think perhaps the TEDx that I gave last November about um, digital citizenship in the surveillance state, you know, have, has had, had something to do with that. But uh, on the surveillance front uh, this week, um, John McCain was – you know, along with with many other senators saying some pretty interesting things in the hearings that we have had with uh, Mr. Comey and 
other representatives of the uh, security state. And uh, this was on C- CNBC on June 7th. He uh, commented on how we're living in an Orwellian existence because we had some things in the Washington Post that were you know, public knowledge, but yet in a Senate hearing, you know, these officials were, were not willing to talk about these kinds of things. And so it is, uh, it's just pretty fascinating. The things, even in our ostensibly, and, it, and we are relative to a lot of countries, very, very free and open, but there's a lot of things that are still, you know, kept under wraps and, and, uh, are, are secret. And the role that surveillance is playing in all of this is right. hugely important. And so, um, I did drop the link to the Weapons of Mass Surveillance uh, BBC News uh, program in there. And then this article is pretty interesting. This uh, I don't even remember where I found this, but this was a November 2016 article. And this wasn't a mainstream media website. This is a, a personal blog by Venema Sander, but it's called Why I Won't Recommend Signal Anymore. And I am not going to say that I that I agree with this, but... Um, the contention here is that these tools like Tor, which is be, which is a browser used to ostensibly be anonymous when you're online, so that if you're in Qatar or Saudi Arabia or UAE or these you know countries that are that we know for a fact uh, are doing you know the United States is too, but they're they're not only doing mass surveillance, but they're also locking people in in prison you know for. Um, you know, posting things on Twitter. I mean, that, that's happening in some Middle Eastern countries. She's saying that the basis of all this is the U.S. intelligence apparatus. And so she thinks in a number of years, it's going to come out that the U.S. intelligence agency, along with others agencies, you know, can crack those along with signal and, and that there is there is no actual privacy. Um, and so it's I think this is just this is super interesting. Right. I I may be on a watch list today because I've experimented with Tor and I run it every once in a while. And, you know, certain folks may wonder, hmm, why would he be running Tor? I wonder if he has something to hide. You know, I mean, we don't know. We're not sure. Uh, We don't we we today do not have the right to ask corporations the information they gather about us and the information they have about us. And we also have very limited ability to ask the government. We can file freedom of information, you know, requests and things like that. But um, where, where are you on your thinking about surveillance, Jason? If we still don't have the tinfoil hat. We've talked about it. So I'm just going to tell people before the year is out, I think someone's going to have a tinfoil hat on here. Yeah, yeah we – well, and, you know, the funny thing about this discussion is that, like, I – you read, like – the, the, the types of things that people see as suspicious behavior, you know, like using the Tor network. And, and for those of you um, uh, unaware of the Tor network, it's a, a distributed uh, Internet. It's almost like a, a, a VPN, although it, it doesn't keep you necessarily private in that way. But basically, uh, a, a bunch of folks have agreed to, and including a notable number of public libraries, have agreed to allow their Internet connection to be used in a distributed way to kind of divide up all of, of, of internet traffic into little tiny pieces so that you can't be trapped. So if I go to your website right now and I'm from my, my home, um, my home internet, you can see my IP address. It probably wouldn't be that difficult to piece together information about me because of the browser that I use and the resolution of my screen and the IP address that I use. Um, and it, it, you know, you leave kind of a trail on the internet. What the Tor browser does is essentially it allows you to insert the, or in, go inside the Tor network. And when you request information from the internet, it pulls it from a bunch of diverse locations, which dramatically decreases the ability of someone to track that particular information. And it's a, you can get a Tor browser on, on your phone. You can get a, a, an easy Tor browser on your computer. It's based on Firefox. It's a really easy to download piece. Um, using the Tor browser, I know I use a VPN whenever I'm in public now on either my phone. If I ever get on any Wi-Fi connection that I don't either control or is controlled by my workplace, I get on a VPN now, either a work control VPN or home one. Part and of what, that, do you, what do you use? What service? Um, I use Private Internet Access PIA, which is a, a, I think they're a Netherlands-based company, but they have about 300 nodes worldwide, including about uh, two dozen in the United States. It's fast, 
it's 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 easy. It costs less than fifty bucks a year. It allows me up to five devices. Um, but my work requires me to use a VPN when I'm in a public network because I trade in private student information. So I am always tunneling back to the University of Montana um, whenever I'm in a piece. And I've actually seen references to um, VPNs like they're somehow suspicious or that you know if you're using a VPN, you know you must be doing something bad. And and sure, if you go and type VPN into Google right now, you're probably going to find references to things like pirating media um, or engaging in in less than social behavior. But it you know it's also something that that any nerd will tell you is a great idea if you want to maintain your privacy, especially when you're outside of your home network. So uh, yeah, I I'm not personally worried about surveillance only because I've taken a number of good steps to 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 be smart about my access but you know i think about my parents my parents are pretty tech savvy uh, my dad's in his 70s my mom's in her late 60s um but you know like they, they have a binder with their passwords in it right like they you know their um um uh, their their router password was recently updated to make it more secure but um you know like they're they're not super engaged in those pieces and no one's really after my parents right but I'm guessing that they're a good analog to, you know, the millions of, of, of average users of these pieces. And you know, there's just so much of our personal data that's being traded that, you know, there, there's got to be a way for us to, to, you know, kind of base things in security as opposed to basing things only in the ubiquity of access. Yeah. And there's definitely issues there as far as who's vulnerable to being sort of used, you know, as far as routers, as far as Internet of Things, you know, the more devices that we, we put out there, um, yeah. you know, there's there's that. Hey, do you want to uh, I saw the, the President Trump wants a sweeping transformation of government tech. He, he says at a White House meeting with execs, the recode article. Um, yeah. Uh, before you talk about that, I, it reminds me, Alan Levine was here in Oklahoma for a um domains conference because he's been been big as far as you know wordpress and setting up your own website and whatnot and uh i didn't mention the, the t word the trump word for quite a while in our conversation and he said that's kind of become a litmus test as he visits with people like how long does it take before they say trump you know some people it's really quick but anyway you want to talk about that record article a little yeah it's pretty vague um and i i haven't got a sense of of maybe the details of the conversation i did look at a couple other sources and they were pretty vague too but trump invited a number of of prominent internet executives to the white house today to talk about the need to radically modernize government utilizing technology. Now, let's be honest, this is not a new theme, right? And I don't, if, if Clinton was in the White House right now, heck if, uh, 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 uh I was going to say Martin Horatio got elected president, but I don't think Martin wants to be president of the United States. Um, I'm trying to remember the other Martin guy that, that ran in the Democratic ticket, uh, one of the lesser known candidates, but no matter who was there, I think it's a good and, and, and timely topic that I think everyone would have pointed to, but, it, it it is an interesting prospect to say that it would be if you want to talk about uh, efficiencies and and, and um, modernization and and in some cases uh, you know eliminating jobs due to efficiencies brought on by technology through automation like that's that's a great place to start I think and um, you know I am not a you know against government jobs at all cost type people I think that the point of government is to serve people and um, we need to have people to serve people like it's not that's a, it's a bottom line process here in, in, in the, the field of customer service but I would love to see any ideas especially if the Silicon Valley wants to start pitching you know, ways we can make things more efficient. Our, our, our taxes are a great example of this. Um, I, and I, I should put, maybe I'll put this in a, a future episode. It's a great podcast that I listened to a couple months ago about there's been efforts to try to make, uh, tax filing easier. Interestingly enough, um, uh, the reason why it, none of them have taken off is because Intuit, the people that make TurboTax, have lobbied very aggressively against that, especially for state level pieces. But, you know, ways to make those pieces more efficient would be, I think, most welcome. So I, um, in an era where, uh, you know, I'm sure no one's surprised, uh, if, if you follow me in social media at all, that I'm not particularly happy with the current administration, but to have a topic introduced like this, I think is a positive direction. And I hope that something comes of this. 
Well, just as we see Apple disrupt certain app developers when they co-opt their functionality and go, oh, well, we're just going to make a flashlight and, you know, write in the app or make the calculator. I mean, it'd be great for some of the things that companies have been doing as add-ons when it comes to tax filing that just, oh, this is available for everyone. Oh, and by the way, it's far simpler because there's, you know, less loopholes. Uh, we're getting close to the top of the hour, but just a couple other things on a, on a lighthearted note, but just an incredible article. Uh, I heard about this on the Security Now podcast, which is a great uh, twit podcast to listen to. Uh, this is The Guardian on May 31st. Ethiopia turns off Internet nationwide as students sit exams. Last year, <laughs> evidently, students took some photos of exams and posted those online. And so to make sure that no one cheated this year, they have an internet kill switch in Ethiopia and they're not afraid to use it. <laughs> and so they actually turned internet off in the entire country. I don't think we have to worry about that happening, but if you want to talk, because I mean, we don't have a kill switch in the United States. There's been talk about that, but you know, talk about the, the tail wagging the dog with testing. <laughs> you know, that just it seems, seems crazy that that would happen. And I don't think it's fake news. I mean, this was the guardian reporting this. So I think this actually. This actually happened. And then in the world of security, uh, a bunch of articles here, but uh, the the middle article there, uh, British Defense Secretary unable to deny Trident nuclear submarines run on same outdated soft, software hackers exploited to cripple the NHS systems, which that was the WannaCry uh, ransomware virus. And yes, we're talking about Windows XP. So uh, perhaps it's air-gapped being in submarines, but... You know, it, it talks about the customizations. In fact, what did they say that was called? There was a name for it that was Windows, wasn't Windows Submarine, but it was something, <laughs> that, something that they had done to customize it. But just like, you know, it's interesting because some of our banking systems that run on COBOL and these really ancient programs uh, actually may be more mature, more, maybe more secure, you know, because they are not running something that that's hackable that that you know hackers are going to be able to to have the direct access to i'm honestly a little concerned saying hey let's privatize the fcc you know uh to you know make it more safe because i think it's pretty safe now and anyway we have the headquarters of the fcc here in oklahoma city and know know some different people that work work there but on the note of uh, windows xp um there was a microsoft article maybe i already marked that one out no, I guess that's the first one. Microsoft releases additional updates for four older platforms to protect against potential nation state activity. And that was from Microsoft TechNet on June 13th. So this is pretty amazing, right? Microsoft announced a few years back, hey, we're going to drop support for XP. The security patches are over. You know, you're, you're just on your own. Disable those, those platforms. But they've seen such an impact for this WannaCry virus and for other things that, you know, they've actually released more patches. I think as we've talked on the show, uh, a lot of those in some countries have actually been pirated versions of those, which are not going to be receiving patches. But, um, you know, pretty, pretty fascinating. And we, we were, we've been having some conversations at school about um, older parents and how older parents can sometimes get themselves in trouble with things they click on and they install, et cetera, and the benefits of a more protected sandboxed environment like the iPad iOS or something else like that, that, you know, just doesn't have as much potential for somebody to click on something and, Oh, look what you got, you know, look what you've um, you've installed on your system now. So any comments about those security articles or, or anything else you want to comment on before Geeks of the Week? Um, I, you know, I think that uh, it's going to become a regular occurrence that sites are going to get hacked and that it's going to lead to impact to us as citizens and consumers. And so I don't, I, I still don't know what we do about this. I, I did note that, or I think one of the articles you had posted Wes talked about that, that Windows stepped in and patched Windows XP, which um, is something that, that they promised they would never, ever do. They had to cut the, cut the uh, apron strings with Windows XP and set it afloat to get people to move to a more op uh, a modern operating system. They felt so compelled by recent hacks that they wanted to patch up those pieces. They went back and updated like 15-year-old server software, and I guess XP now is what, 16-year-old uh, desktop software to be able to uh, deal with that, but the bottom line is, is that, um, you know, systems move on and, um, you know, it, it, I still laugh every time I go to an airport and I see a, 
um, a either a blue screen of death or a uh, an error message that clearly is Windows XP, and it's like I don't want my airports running Windows XP. So, uh, you know, I think that's an interesting piece that we have to be hyper aware of. Well, I did a screenshot of our articles and used the old pencil to mark through. We we did did pretty well covering them tonight. Um. Why don't we do some geeks of the week? And actually, maybe before that, we ought to tell people we're gonna we're gonna try to do a session from ISTE next week. Um, I will be headed down there by train on Saturday, and Jason is gonna be hitchhiking right all the way all the way yep. from Montana. Uh, we will try to do a show. We're thinking uh, late on Monday, so ac- actually, yeah, it'll be a week from tonight if all goes well. But uh, we did a show last year, and it'll be interesting to, to see what, what's announced. And I'm looking forward to having a, having a busy time. Normally, I'm not quite as busy. So who knows? Maybe I'll have pulled my hair out, and I will be bald, and have to, I'll, I'll wear a hat for the show. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll try, to, try to bring some uh, news from, from uh, San Antonio next week. So what, uh, what is your Geek of the Week? Well, um, I so obviously we talk a lot about podcasting um, on this podcast, and uh, I still think it's one of the, one of the most underappreciated um, uh, educational resources available. And um, I might be actually opening up a, a little business later this year that I'm not at liberty to announce yet, uh, related to uh, creating resources to help classroom teachers utilize podcasts better. But um, I do want to talk about, I did find a, uh, find, which makes it sound like that I stumbled onto it, uh, a couple of weeks ago on the Recode Too Embarrassed to Ask podcast, which is an excellent podcast, uh, with Kara Swisher from Recode. And basically they cover topics that seem like they should be pretty obvious, but they go into kind of painful detail on them. And, you know, if you're, if you're already pretty tech savvy or a geek, it's probably nothing too new to you, but I always find like the challenge, my perspectives on my understanding of things. And so they did a really great podcast a couple weeks ago called What Are the Best Podcasts Right Now? And there's lots of great, um, uh, recommendations in there, some of which I had never heard of before. Uh, but the thing that I pulled most from that was their guest had come from um, the 60DB app. Uh, there's a company that creates this new podcast app called 60DB. And the idea behind it is uh, twofold. The first one is that they think that there is a lot of underappreciated content that podcast listeners don't really uh, utilize. And their example was short pieces, right? six minute, 10 minute, 11 minute pieces that are not uh, the kind of long, they, they kept referring to, you know, re- long rambly podcasts. And I, I think Wes, unfortunately we would be categorized as a long rambly podcast. So, but they um, you know, said that the, the long rambly podcast model is kind of dominating right now. Right. But that, you know, listeners need to find a way to access all the great content that's small and efficient, which includes things like public radio stories, um, people that are producing, short form podcasting, but this app works a lot like the NPR One app in that you can start off by putting in some information that you want, and then you can start thumb upping and thumb downing it in order to try to teach it what you're looking for. And I've only been using it for 48 hours. I did use it on a car ride uh, yesterday for three hours, and I found like it was it was pretty efficient actually at getting me things that were targeted right away to what I was looking for. So it's 60 dB. It's a free app on iOS and Android. And if you're looking for you know to be challenged in um, you know kind of new ways then um, that might be a great way for you to discover new content that you might not have otherwise listened to. Awesome. Well, I've got two quick geeks of the week. I mentioned Alan Levine was was here in town and I got to spend some time with him last weekend. Um, If you don't follow him on Twitter, he's CogDog, and he's one of the most amazing and prolific creators of digital stories. And just he's part of the DS106 group that does the daily create and just an amazing guy. Awesome. Awesome. Nice guy. Um, he mentioned a site I wish I had known about a little over a year ago when I was needing to back up Bob Sprankle's websites. And I, I still have those archived, but they're offline and the actual domains have gone off and I need to, you know, go into the MySQL databases and change and yada, yada, yada. This is called Site Sucker. 
and it's a Mac OS program and it will go in and, and suck, suck these, you know, or download these websites and make static HTML versions. Back in the day, and this would have been in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties, there was a program called Web Whacker that we used. This is well, you know, even before we had T1 lines in our schools and, and we had this amazing website called the nine planets and you could look up all these you know, photographs and information about the planets of the solar system. And anyway, I remember <clears throat> working at Rush Elementary School in Lubbock, Texas, and we, we didn't have a T1 line. We still had modems. And so sometimes we would go downtown to where they had a direct internet connection with this thing called a zip drive, right? 100 megabytes of power. And we would download these websites, bring them back to school, and you'd locally, you know, be able to access them. Anyway, I'm thrilled to death to find SiteSucker from Mac OS because if you've got a need to make a static version of a web page, website that you want to preserve, that looks like a great tool. And it's free. And then the last one is the Eclipse Mega Movie Project. And I have a link to a little Newsweek article that gives you more information. As you are hopefully aware, we're about to have a full solar eclipse in the month of August. I don't know if it's going to actually pass over you, but hey, here's the website that'll tell you, Jason, because you can put in your location for where you'll be on August 21st, and it will show you what the sun is going to look like as far as the eclipse at a particular time of day. And interestingly, they're doing a citizen journalism project, and they're going to try and aggregate photographs from folks all over the world and then create these, um, you know, composite images that are going to show the eclipse as it goes across. It's a, a Google project. So very cool. Check it out and get ready for the eclipse in August. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Wes. Very exciting stuff. Um, by the way, that site sucker program, I have used that in the past. It couldn't be easier. Like it's, it really, you know, it, it feels like it's almost like too easy, right? Just a couple of buttons and you're good to go. Awesome. So, uh, this is the EdTech Situation Room. You can join us most weeks on Wednesdays, uh, for, uh at, uh, 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 10 p.m. Eastern, and then some other hour, uh, UTC. I, someday I remember I put that and put that in a sticky note on my laptop, so I remember that. And you can watch us live. We tweet out at EdTechSR. Uh, usually when we are live and you could get, join our chat room this week, we were on a different day. So our usual chat crew did not, was not able to join us, but, uh, we love your input and, and absolutely uh, welcome you to jump on. And if you're interested in being a guest, you should also find us on Twitter and let us know that we love bringing people onto the show and as many voices as we can to talk about ed tech topics, we think makes the show that much better. So, uh, you can find EdTechSR on our website, edtechsr.com. You can find us on Twitter, um, edtechsr or at EdTechSR, and then we are available wherever fighter podcasts are aggregated. So we're in the iTunes store, we're in um, Stitcher Radio, we are in the Google uh, podcast directory. Um, you can ask for us on your Google Home. I'm fairly sure you could ask for us on your Alexa. Wherever you're listening to podcasts, we are likely there. So my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director of the Montana Digital Academy uh, located in Missoula, Montana. I'm on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, and I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. And Wes, I'll send to you to close us out. I'm Wes Fryer. I'm W. Fryer on Twitter. I uh, blog periodically at speedofcreativity.org. I'm excited to be headed up close to Jason to Jackson Hole and Yellowstone, uh, actually after ISTE, to do an iPad Media Camp. So you can follow iPad Media Camp on Twitter and check out that website, ipadmediacamp.com, because we're doing some exciting badge-based uh, work with iPad literacy and projects and things like that this summer. And it's going to be fun to kind of see where that goes. So would love to hear from you guys and especially look forward to ISTE. Check out the hashtag, by the way, not at ISTE. The ISTE 2017 hashtag is great, but there is an amazing collection of resources, presentations, and live events that are going to be happening this year, even more so than in the past for those not at ISTE. There'll be about 20,000 of us down there in San Antonio, but even more people in other spots. And so it's a great time to learn about ed tech, to network, and build that professional learning community. Good night. Good night. <laughs>